0: spent a few weeks now looking together at the book of Ezekiel. And as we've been looking at this book, several of you have remarked to me that it's a bit scary. And I would have to agree with that. At certain points, coming to grips with this book is a bit like sticking your head in a furnace. It gets pretty hot and pretty uncomfortable pretty quickly. This book presents us with a God who is at times frightening in his holiness. He's not tame. He's not safe. But all of us like to be comforted. We don't like to be unsettled. And while there are comforting things in this book, there are lots of unsettling things too. And actually we could widen this out to the whole of Scripture. It's not just the book of Ezekiel, it has unsettling things to say to us. All of scripture, including the words of Jesus, contains things that make us uncomfortable. That shouldn't be surprising to us because we're all sinners. And God's aim is to make us more like himself. So plenty of what God has to say to us will make us uncomfortable. Someone has said that to sit under the text of Scripture is to be uncomfortable. God himself compares his word to a fire and a hammer. If we can consistently read Scripture and listen to Scripture being preached and yet never feel uncomfortable, then something's badly wrong. If God didn't love us, he would let us stay uncomfortable In fact, sorry, he would let us stay comfortable in our sin and disobedience. But he does love us. He loves us enough to unsettle us and convict us and work on us. So we can be thankful for the scary bits of Scripture. They're a gift from God to us. Their purpose is to show us the truth, to give us a greater sense of God's power and holiness. Their purpose is to show us more of the ugliness of sin and bring us back to our knees before God. What we're going to find this morning is that you and I are not the first people to prefer comforting lies to unsettling truth. Ezekiel's audience was just the same. In the passage we're going to look at, we're going to find Three comforting lies that Ezekiel's audience was holding on to. We're going to hear God responding to each of those lies with an unsettling truth. Then we'll hear God give a warning to those who love lies. So three comforting lies, three unsettling truths, and God's warning to those who love lies. And scattered throughout our passage, we find God's purpose in confronting these lies. He wants us to be saved from the slavery and destruction of lies. As you can see on the screen, we're going to pick up in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 21. If you haven't found that yet, it's on page 839 in the church Bible. And we'll follow this through to chapter 14, verse 11. In the first 20 verses of chapter 12, which we're not going to read, God gives Ezekiel some more street theater to perform. In front of his fellow exiles in Babylon, he's to act like a man being taken into exile. And the message he's given is the same as his earlier message. Don't rest your hopes on Jerusalem. Don't think if you just got back to Jerusalem, all would be well. Because Jerusalem is going to fall. Those left in Jerusalem are going to be exiled too. God's judgment is coming. That's the message of the first part of chapter 12. And so far, Ezekiel has been faithfully delivering the messages that God gives him. But we're about to learn that his messages are not being taken seriously. Ezekiel's fellow exiles are hearing about God's wrath but they prefer a comforting lie. The lie is that God's warnings never lead to anything. Look at chapter 12, verse 21. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, what is this proverb they have in the land of Israel? The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. Say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to put an end to this proverb, and they will no longer quote it in Israel. Say to them, The days are near when every vision will be fulfilled, for there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak what I will, and it shall be fulfilled without delay. For in your days, you rebellious house, I will fulfill whatever I say, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the house of Israel is saying, the vision he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies about the distant future. Therefore say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. None of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever I say will be fulfilled, declares the Sovereign Lord. There are actually two versions of the lie in circulation. The first version is in verse 22. The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. The second version is in verse 27. The vision he sees is for many years from now. And he prophesies about the distant future. The first version of the lie says, Ezekiel is just a scaremonger. What he's saying is never going to happen. The second version of the lie says, maybe there is something in what he says. Who knows? But even if some of this does happen, it won't be in our time. It won't affect us. It's for the distant future. We don't need to worry about it. Two versions of the same lie. The lie that says we don't need to take God's word seriously. God's warnings never come to anything. In verse 22, God says, this is a proverb among the Israelites. A proverb is a short saying that reflects the popular wisdom. So this saying in both of its forms reflected the general mindset of the day. If you have this mindset, you can hear the most frightening and sober warnings, but they won't faze you at all. They'll be like water off a duck's back. You'll just brush them off by saying, well, nothing's happened so far, so it's not going to happen. The exact same attitude was around in New Testament times. 2 Peter talks about scoffers who go around saying, where is this second coming Christ promised? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. The reasoning is delay this proves the warning. If it was going to happen, it would already have happened. It's a bit like the window cleaner on the top floor of the skyscraper. He's standing outside the building on a little platform attached to the building by ropes. There he is washing away, and for a moment he forgets where he is. He steps backwards. Into thin air. The reality is that man is hurtling towards certain death. Every second is taking him closer to death. And yet, all the way down, he's saying peacefully to himself, So far, so good. So far, so good. That man is an idiot. He is misinterpreting his situation. Death hasn't come yet, but it's certain. He has no reason at all to feel at peace or to feel confident about his future. That man's optimism is the optimism of a fool. And to those who are peaceful in the face of God's warnings, God says, Don't mistake delay for inability. Look again at verse 23. I am going to put an end to this proverb, and they will no longer quote it in Israel. Say to them, the days are near when every vision will be fulfilled, for there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak what I will, and it shall be fulfilled without delay. For in your days, you rebellious house, I will fulfill whatever I say declares the Sovereign Lord. Don't mistake delay on God's part for inability on God's part. He's working to his own timetable. When his time is right, all that he has promised will be done. Maybe you can identify with Ezekiel's audience on this. Maybe you're not a Christian, and yet warnings about God's judgment don't faze you in the least you don't take them seriously because you've never seen judgment fall. You've never felt the force of God's wrath. So you take comfort in the idea that judgment never will fall. You never will feel the force of it. Maybe you profess to be a Christian, but you're not taking sin seriously. Maybe you're pressing on happily in some sin. You're fully aware what God's word says about it, but if you're honest, you don't really care what God's word says. Life goes on and your sin seems to be working out quite well. Maybe at first you were a bit worried about your disobedience, but it's been a while now and nothing's happened. God hasn't intervened. So you carry on in disobedience. God's message is, don't be fooled. Don't be like that window cleaner when it comes to God's judgment. Don't be comforted by a delay in judgment. Don't mistake God's delay for inability. God's Old Testament warnings of judgment did come true. History shows us that. His New Testament warnings will also come true. God is being gracious this morning by confronting you with this unsettling truth. This morning is the time to wake up and turn from your sin. So Ezekiel is preaching. But Ezekiel was not the only preacher among the exiles in Babylon. There were other, more attractive preachers around. They were more attractive because they had a comforting message. Their message was, everything's really okay. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the bricks in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle on the day of the Lord. Their visions are false and their divinations a lie. They say, the Lord declares... When the Lord has not sent them, yet they expect their words to be fulfilled. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say, The Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because of your false words and lying visions, I am against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will not belong to the council of my people or be listed in the records of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Because they lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. When the wall collapses, will people not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, In my wrath I will unleash a violent wind and in my anger hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it and you will know that I am the Lord. So I will spend my wrath against the wall and against those who covered it with whitewash. I will say to you, the wall is gone, and so are those who whitewashed it. Those prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Sovereign Lord. The first thing we learn about these other preachers is that, verse 2, they prophesy out of their own imagination, literally their own heart. And yet they claim to be speaking for God. But the reality is, verse 3, they are foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. In other words, they haven't heard any word from God. They haven't been given any vision from God. The word foolish here doesn't mean the kind of fool who's stupid. It means the kind of fool who's a scoundrel. He knows full well what he's doing, but he carries on doing it anyway. In this case, these foolish prophets are spiting off their own human wisdom, but they're packaging it up as the word of the Lord. In verse 4, God says these people are like jackals among ruins. Jackals are scavengers. They don't help anyone. They don't build anything up. They pick over ruins for their own benefit. Here God is saying, Israel's in a mess. It's falling apart. It's about to fall to Babylon. But these guys are just trying to benefit themselves. What they should be doing, verse 5, is trying to address Israel's problem. They ought to be going to the bricks in the wall to repair it. In other words, they should be joining their voice with Ezekiel's. They should be confronting Israel with her broken relationship with God, calling Israel to repentance. But instead of that, what is their message? Look again at verse 10. They lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. The truth is that the Israelites are facing devastation. Through the Babylonian army, God's sharp sword is about to fall. His bow is bent, and it's pointing at Israel's heart. But these guys are sauntering around preaching peace. Everything's really okay. And even worse, they preface their preaching by saying, "'Hear the word of the Lord.'" The Lord declares peace. Now in one sense, God is offering peace. That's the goal of all his warnings through Ezekiel. He wants to be reconciled to sinful, rebellious Israel. Peace is possible if Israel will genuinely repent. If they'll turn to God and away from their sin. But these lying prophets are proclaiming peace when there has been no repentance. God says they're like cowboy builders. I don't know if you use that phrase around here. The kind of workmen who try to cover up their shoddy work. God says they throw up a flimsy little mud wall, badly built, the kind that even a mouse could push over. Then they slap paint or plaster on it. So that it looks like a proper wall. It looks like a solid one, one that's going to hold. But the reality hasn't changed with the whitewash. The wall is still going to fall down. That's what these lying prophets are doing when they preach. They have nothing secure to offer the people, but they certainly sound good. Everything's okay. Don't worry. God's not really angry, not with you. Relax, peace. Your message might be comforting, but it's lies. It's a flimsy wall, a gust of wind could blow it over. But it's very attractive, and people are trusting in it. But God has a response. Don't trust those who plaster over problems. Look down to verse 11. Tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. When the wall collapses, will people not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? A comforting lie of peace will do people no good in the long run. There's no security in it. Trusting in it leads in the end to destruction. The singer Jewel has a song that says, if I could tell the world just one thing, it would be we're all okay. And not to worry, because worry is wasteful and useless in times like these. That sounds good. It's comforting, but it's not true. Yes, when we're reconciled to God, we have no reason to worry. But so long as we're unreconciled, the first thing we ought to be doing is worrying. Because we're not okay. A friend of Megan and myself was involved some time ago in pretty self-destructive behavior. But her counselor told her that it was very important for her not to feel guilty. So if anyone raised the subject of her sin, she would immediately say, Stop, you mustn't make me feel guilty. Now certainly when we forsake our sin, when we turn from our sin to Christ, then it's been forgiven. At that point we have no reason to feel guilty. If the devil tries to remind us of our sin we can tell him to get lost. But until then, until our sin has been dealt with, it's pretty important that we feel guilty. Our guilt is there to drive us to repentance. It's a gift from God to unsettle us in our sin. When we are pressing on in sin, it is a lie that everything's really okay. It's just whitewashing over the problem. It does us no good in the long run. The problem needs to be addressed. It's been said that in our society, the seven deadly sins have become the seven deadly ills. The wisdom of the day is that sin is not something we are to take personal responsibility for. It's caused by our environment. The influences that we've been exposed to. Our sin is really our parents' fault. Or our teachers' fault. Or David Cameron's fault. Or maybe it's still Tony Blair's fault. Or it's the fault of our evolutionary impulses. The one thing it isn't, we're told, is our fault. That's the wisdom of the day. We heard lots of it after the recent riots across the country. If you listen to some people everyone was to blame except the rioters themselves. Now there is no doubt the circumstances we are born into do have an effect on us. The things that happen to us do influence us. They can shape us in good or bad ways. That is true. But the Bible points us to an even deeper truth. The Bible points us to a reality that's even more significant than our environment. It tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our hearts incline toward evil. We delight in evil. We sin in the end because we're sinful rebels who reject God's authority over us. So it's true, God will hold others responsible for the ways that they influence us. But he will rightly hold us responsible for the choices that we make. We can't ultimately blame our sin on others. Until our sin is acknowledged and brought to the cross, everything is not okay. And we are foolish to trust those who tell us it is okay. No matter how comforting their lives might be. No matter how catchy their songs might be. We can apply this point to our relationships with one another. Some of us are very empathetic people. We love to offer comfort to others. And we should thank God for giving comforters to the church. They're a blessing. The church is richer because of its comforters. It's a gift that we should all be praying for. But if you're someone whose instinct is to offer comfort, be careful. Because sometimes we offer comfort too quickly. Sometimes we comfort people before their sin has been dealt with. And when we do that, we are saying peace when there is no peace. Not from God's perspective. We're just plastering over the problem. We never want to be harsh or unkind. But sometimes the kind thing is to help someone see the destructiveness of their sin. That's one of the ways God is kind to us. His comfort and peace come to us after we own up to our sin and turn back to him. In verses 17 to 23, God points to a third comforting lie that was popular in Ezekiel's day. The lie is that God can be manipulated. Look at chapter 13, verse 17. Now, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own imagination. Prophesy against them and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the women who sew magic charms on their wrists and make veils of various lengths for their heads in order to ensnare people. Will you ensnare the lives of my people but preserve your own? You have profaned me among my people for a few handfuls of barley and scraps of bread. By lying to my people who listen to lies, you have killed those who should not have died. And have spared those who should not live. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against your magic charms with which you ensnare people like birds. And I will tear them from your arms. I will set free the people that you ensnare like birds. I will tear off your veils and save my people from your hands. And they will no longer fall prey to your power. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you disheartened the righteous with your lies when I had brought them no grief. And because you encouraged the wicked not to turn from their evil ways and so save their lives. Therefore, you will no longer see false visions or practice divination. I will save my people from your hands. And then you will know that I am the Lord. There were good female prophets in the Old Testament. Deborah was one. But these ones were rotten. And their basic message to the people was that God could be manipulated. The manipulation took the form of magic. This was probably stuff they'd picked up from the Babylonians who lived all around them. Verse 18 mentions magic wristbands and veils. The word translated veils may actually refer to amulets that were worn around the neck. An amulet is something that's supposed to ward off evil. So whatever these things looked like exactly, they were supposed to keep you safe. These lying prophets were not telling people things were okay. No, these ones acknowledged there was a problem, but they were feeding the people the wrong answer. These charms were part of a whole system that was designed to manipulate spiritual powers. So if you wear the right charm, if you perform the right ritual, say the right magic words, then you get the result that you want. Pagan religion was built on this kind of approach. Treat the gods the right way and they'll do what you want. It seems these lady prophets were encouraging Israel to treat the Lord in the same way. Pay us the right amount, they were saying. If you don't have money, barley or bread will do. We'll give you the armband or the ceremony that you need, and the Lord will respond as you want, just like the genie in Aladdin's lamp. I think all of us feel the attraction of that kind of religion. Now, I doubt that any of us are into wearing charms. And we'd certainly never use the word manipulate when it comes to God. But don't we sometimes imagine that if we just tick the right boxes, God will do what we want? He'll dance to our tune? Maybe we even come to church with that attitude. Just tell me what I need to do to keep God happy. Maybe we feel that if we give enough and give regularly enough or attend church enough, read our Bible enough, if we're honest in our business, well then God will sort of owe us, won't he? He'll basically have to bring good things our way, won't he? And won't he have to make sure that bad things don't happen to us? I was talking to someone a few days ago, a veteran church minister. And he was facing the prospect of serious illness. His brother had said to him, how could God do this to you? You've been a minister for decades. As far as the brother was concerned, this man had earned some capital with God. The least God could do was make sure he didn't get sick. I hasten to add that the minister himself strongly disagreed with his brother. But his brother was expressing a very common idea. All of us can be tempted by it. The idea is that there are things we can do to earn capital with God. And maybe deep down, we think if we do those things, he'll have to turn a blind eye to our sin. The sin that we treasure up in our heart. The darling sin that we pet and coddle. The precious sin that we're just not willing to turn from. We think that if we do enough other good things, God will let us keep this one little sin, won't he? He'll ignore our bitter tongue or our greed or whatever it is. When you and I try to deal with God that way, our religion is just as misguided and just as superstitious as these exiles in Babylon. As one writer has said, it's trying to use human efforts to harness divine power for selfish ends. Trying to use human efforts to harness divine power for selfish ends. But God's response to these lying prophets and to those who flocked to them was this I cannot be manipulated. Only repentance will do. In verse 18, he says these lying prophets are ensnaring people, they're leading men and women into a whole system of rituals and procedures designed to please God. But it's a system of slavery. And it doesn't work. Look what God says in verse 22. You disheartened the righteous with your lies when I had brought them no grief. And you encouraged the wicked not to turn from their evil ways and so save their lives. These ladies were telling the wicked they could get away with their wickedness if they just paid their money and performed their ritual. But God says only repentance will do. They need to turn from their evil ways. God is not going to be appeased by our little religious offerings and maneuverings. We must turn from our evil ways if we want to be saved. And actually, it's incredibly freeing for us to realize this. When we try to please God with our own performance, we never know if we've done enough. In fact, it's impossible to do enough. It's very disheartening to get caught up in that. We can never have true peace. What God calls us to do is to drop our efforts to manipulate him, to be honest about our sin and to come to him in repentance. It might be unsettling to be told we need to repent. But in fact, it's our only way to true deliverance. And that's God's aim for us. He's going to silence these lying lady prophets and his goal, he says in verse 23, is to save my people from your hands. The truth may be unsettling, but if we will listen and respond to it, we'll be saved. Our passage closes with A warning to those who love lies. Chapter 14, verse 1. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. When any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man And make him an example and a byword. I will cut him off from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy. I the Lord have enticed that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him. And destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. And the people of Israel will no longer stray from me nor will they defile themselves any more with all their sins. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the Sovereign Lord. God's warning is that God gives those who love lies over to lies. In verse 1, Ezekiel explains that the leaders of the exiles came and sat down in front of him. They want to hear from him. And on the face of it, that seems like a good thing. After all, isn't Ezekiel the one prophet out of all of them who's actually telling the truth? Isn't he the one person the elders should be coming and listening to? Yes, it's true. But the fact is, they've already heard Ezekiel. He's already given them the Lord's message. These men have sat in Ezekiel's living room before. They've already heard about God's anger at false worship. They've heard about him leaving Jerusalem because of false worship. They've heard about the wrath coming on Jerusalem because there's no repentance. These men have been challenged to repent themselves. But instead of repenting, They come back for another sermon. Look at God's reaction in verse 3. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? These guys are happy to listen to sermons, but they won't respond to them, they won't heed the call to repentance. Why? Because they love lies. Maybe they're not bowing down to idols of wood and stone, but God says they have idols in their hearts and they're not willing to give them up. So they'll show up for the next installment from Ezekiel because after all, he is a pretty exciting preacher. A bit scary, but some people like a good scare now and again. They'll show up, but they have no intention of submitting to the word they hear from Ezekiel. Yes, their bums are on the seats, but in their hearts they have rejected the message. And God says, should I let them inquire of me at all? Should I continue to be gracious by setting the truth before them? Verse 4. Speak to them and tell them this is what the Sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. What is God saying? He's saying that if we persist in loving lies, he may give us over to lies. He may let the lying prophets become the dominant voices. He may let Ezekiel's voice fade away. We find the same thing in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, Paul explains that God has made himself known. But he says men and women neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Idols. Therefore, Paul says, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Three times he says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. We find the same thing here. God gives those who love lies over to lies. When men and women reject God's unsettling truth, He may let them sink in their comforting lies. We must never presume on God's patience. He is patient, but He is not indefinitely patient. This applies to those of us who have never yet come to Him for salvation. And it applies, too, to those of us who claim to be saved, but who may be living in rebellion against God. Every single Christian will struggle with sin until the day we stand before God in the new heaven and earth. But that's the point. We must struggle with our sin. We must heed God's call to increasingly forsake our sin and our idols to pursue him as our treasure. If you feel like every day is a battle with sin, then you're in a healthy place. The person who has no struggle against sin is in a very dangerous place. That's the place these elders were in. They were complacent in their sin. As they sat there listening to Ezekiel's message, they were polishing up the idols in their hearts. If you or I have become complacent about our sin, if we think that our particular sins are no big deal, at least we're not doing what our neighbor does, if we're content with finding our security and comfort and joy in things that are other than God, if we've given up the idea of progressing in our obedience, Then we need to wake up. The truth can be very unsettling. But that is a good thing. God loves to prod his people away from their sin. Look finally what he says here in chapter 14. Talking about his judgment on the complacent elders of Israel, he says in verse 5, I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel. They have all deserted me for their idols. God brings unsettling truth to us to recapture our hearts. Again, down in verse 11, God makes his aim very clear. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. God brings the truth to us to shake us loose from our idols and our sin. He brings us the truth because he is gracious. He is loving enough to unsettle us again and again. Let's thank him for that. And as he unsettles us, let's respond to him by coming back to the cross where Jesus died for us. It's very unsettling to look at the cross. The ugliness of Jesus' death shows us the truth about our sin. It's ugly. It made the Son of God ugly when it was laid on his shoulders. During those hours he was on the cross, Jesus' Father looked away from him. His son was ugly because he was carrying my sin. In your sin. The cross shows us the unsettling truth about our sin. It's not small. But the cross is also our only hope for true comfort. The cross tells us that Jesus died so we could find forgiveness. Whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or 4 months... Or if you're not yet a Christian, the cross is your only hope. It's a very good thing when God reminds us of that. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to miss the challenge that you have brought to us this morning. We don't want to be comfortable in our sin. But we also know that when you come and when you unsettle us, you do it so that we'll come to you for true comfort. When we confess our sins and turn to you from our sins, you are faithful and just. You will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. So Father, we ask that you will show us the truth. Show us any comforting lies that we might be holding on to. Show us any idols that we have set up in our hearts. Things that we love and live for instead of you. Show us any precious, darling sins that we might have. And will you help us to see how much greater you are Show us how much more worthy you are of our love and devotion. And then will you remind us that we can come to you boldly. We can come to you forgiven through the blood of Christ. Amen. We began our service by asking God to search us, try us, consume all our darkness. And we're going to end by asking the same thing. We'll begin with some words taken from Psalm 139. Search me, O God. And then we'll finish by singing, I come by the blood. If you'll stand with me, please.